For over 50 years, the American Birding Association has worked to inspire all people to enjoy and protect wild birds. This podcast is one of many programs nurturing our community, sharing stories and news, information and tips from around the birding world. But we can't do it without you. Our spring fundraising drive is about to wrap up, and we're in urgent need of your continued support. Please take a moment to visit aba.org give or call us anytime at 800-850-2473. Thank you for your support, and thank you for listening to the American Birding Podcast. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. It is the end of the month, and that means that it is time for this month in birding for June. And so without much to talk about in this opening segment, I'm going to get you to that part of the show as quickly as possible because because I got nothing here that we're not going to talk about there. Though I will make a quick thank you to the folks who sent me messages about last week's Black Birders Week episode. I agree. Tarina and Taiki are fantastic. That whole cohort of Black Birders Week folks are amazing, and I look forward to the opportunity to go to that well with some regularity. Not necessarily to talk about race and birding, but but also birds and bird science as well, because there is some cool stuff going on on that front also. And I will remind you that if you enjoy this sort of thing on the American Birding Podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. We are not always going to talk about birding culture type stuff, but I have some exciting shows in the upcoming weeks about conservation, environmental politics, bird-friendly coffee, birding in the internet. If it is bird-adjacent, bird-friendly, we are going to cover it. So with that said, I will introduce this fine collection of bird writers, thinkers, and tweeters who join me for the June 2020 This Month in Birding. They are a trio of science writers and birders from IBM and Gizmodo, Ryan Mendelbaum from Popular Science, Perbita Saha, and back by popular demand, I assume, I haven't really asked around, it is the birdist Nick Lund. They join me after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of June 2020. Tropical Storm Cristobal turned out to be more exciting than it even seemed at the time, as photos came out this week of a Michigan state-first black skimmer in St. Clair County, just north of Detroit, in the wake of the storm. Black skimmer seems to be one of the signature birds of Cristobal, as that was hardly the only inland record in those days surrounding the storm's passage. One other bird of note for the ABA area this week, proving that it's not just Arizona pulling in noteworthy Mexican vagrants, a slate-throated red start at Big Bend National Park in Brewster County, Texas, is the second there in as many years. I think the 2019 birds ended up nesting, so we'll see if we can expect the same in 2020. And that is all I got for this week. For all the birds I didn't mention here, please check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert update at aba.org slash RBA every Friday morning. You can also join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare or follow our Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Welcome once again to This Month in Birding for June 2020. I am joined by some Bird Twitter all-stars confirming once again, as if it were necessary, that my motivation for these end-of-the-month panels was simply to talk to people whose bird takes I enjoy on social media. So this this one is heavy on science writers, so buckle up, I suppose. 
unless you're listening to this in the car, in which case you should already be buckled up. Um, please do not unbuckle yourself and buckle yourself back in. Uh, to start, they are a science writer currently with IBM, uh, but while at the popular science blog, Gizmodo became, I am certain, the most read bird writer in the world under the Birdmodo masthead. They are Ryan F. Mendelbaum on Twitter. It is, of course, Ryan Mendelbaum. Welcome. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited. Formerly with Audubon, now at Popular Science, she is a journalist and a birder and a Yukon partisan. She goes by at Hahabita on Twitter. Welcome, Prabita Saha. Hello. I'm so excited to be on the American Bar Association podcast. Oh, no, you're in the wrong place. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) This this is is so awkward. (laughs) He is the man known as the birdist and the seventh most regular guest on the American Birding Podcast. Welcome back, Nick Lund. I'm coming for you, Ted Floyd. Yeah. Oh man, he's so far ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Who's six? Do, we, do you know? Uh, yeah, I do actually. I made a list. So let's see. Ted Floyd is number one. Ugh. Yeah, right. That guy. And then uh, you are tied. It's Donna Shulman. Okay. Who talks about good bird company? Books. Yeah, good company. Well, hello. Good afternoon, everyone. So welcome to all of you. Uh, we can talk a little bit about stuff that's been going on in the bird world for the last few weeks. But I definitely want to start with. You know, probably the biggest thing that happened in birding maybe this year, and that was Black Birders Week at the beginning of June. And uh, I, I want to acknowledge right off that it is a little weird that uh, we have four non-Black birders commenting on it. But I, I do think that it's important for the rest of the you know birding world, which is overwhelmingly uh, white, overwhelmingly non-Black, to, you know, to, to notice that Blackbirders are doing their thing and to, to be able to amplify and, you know, encourage those voices. What did you guys think about Blackbirders Week? I thought it was fantastic. I was so happy to see all of these new birders who uh, just through my own ignorance haven't been following. And yeah. I'm just happy to, uh, I mean, now I, and, and just be, be more aware of the issues that they're facing so that I can myself be more cognizant and tell my friends to be more cognizant. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> I loved it. Of course, I mean, it was uh, it was big news, and it sh- was showed a really interesting side of our hobby. You know, I, I haven't been birding that long, fifteen years or so, and um, you know, the idea that there would be a Blackbirders Week when I started, um, you know, was not on anybody's radar. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm just really proud to see how birding has changed in a short amount of time, uh, and mm-hmm. I hope that. Uh, you know, people were listening to these, uh, to the Blackbirders and to all the events of Blackbirding Week. Um, so we can, you know, be the most inclusive uh, hobby that we know that we are. Yeah. And I think beyond the positive vibes and awareness that it brought, I was also interested to see the response from birders. I mean, overwhelmingly it was supportive, but then mm-hmm. there were the few instances where people were like, I don't understand why we need to specifically call out blackbirders or why we have to bring politics and identity into the mix. So it also just revealed that we still have work to do in bringing the rest of our community along with us. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and like um, like all of you, I was you know disappointed to see those things in a lot of, you know, it was by and large in, you know, Facebook groups that we may or may not be affiliated with. But one of the things that I thought was really um, interesting, though, was sort of in the in the panel discussions, especially the, the ones that were hosted at Audubon, um, kind of the things that Blackbirders brought up that I thought applied also to a lot of different the ways in which birding can reach out to people, anybody who might feel sort of anxious about joining a group. 
um, some of the things that they said, especially with regard to how birders sort of can feel unwelcoming or want to feel out new people and figure out how much they can trust them. That stuff would be really important that can be applied to, to a lot of things. I'm curious as what you thought about that. Um, when you guys became birders, did you sort of feel as though there was like a testing, a, a time when people were sort of testing you out to kind of determine how serious you were about it or how much they can trust you? Yeah, I mean, I'm probably maybe the newest birder of the group. And I definitely, when I was first joining, felt a lot of just, it, it's just an awkward hobby at first. And I don't know if it's because of the people yeah. being awkward, but I would, you know, go out and people kind of look side-eyed at you and they're like, oh, do you really know what you're talking about? You know, you'll say, oh, yeah. I just saw a willow flycatcher. And they'll be immediately be like, oh, well, are you sure it wasn't an alder flycatcher? And you're like... <laughs> I mean, I've been doing this for like a month. I don't know what I'm talking about. Be nice to me. <laughs> you know, it's an odd uh, hobby in that you are sort of relying on people's word to a large extent. And, you know, there's no black belts, right? If, <laughs> if like you're taking karate and a dude's got a black belt, you're like, well, he, he's a black belt in birding. You know, <laughs> mess with him. Yeah, he, you sort of know. And so that is that is a part of it, I think, for all birders. And uh, I'm sure to some extent, I when I meet a new birder, there's a feeling out period as well. I, you know, I think we really need to keep and be conscious of that. Mm -hmm. But the more that people understand that because there's so much uncertainty in birders and among birding that the questions you ask and the looks that you give um, carry, a, you know, carry a lot more meaning than you may intend or, or um, that the person may interpret. Um, and so to be really careful uh, how you approach new birders. Yeah, especially if you are already sort of feeling anxious about belonging. That's a thing that, you know, black birders, I think, sometimes feel more than a lot of other people. Um, do I belong here? Is this a place for me? And there are things that we do that uh, could be better about that, I think. That's certainly yeah. one of the things, one of the takeaways for me. Yeah, and I think, too, there's a certain, you know, birding just is socially weird. You know, I, I think I birded, <laughs> well, I think I birded for four years before I birded with someone else. You know, part of me felt like I was you know, one of those kids raised by wolves or something coming into society for the first time and trying to like, you know, learn what language was. The social aspects of birding are, for, for a lot of people, not the first thing, you know, not why they're into birding. Um, and so yeah. um, it's really important, I think, to remember that, that people have different skill sets. It can be just hard for folks to communicate sometimes. Nick, I would say I had a similar experience in that I started birding solo and then um, going from college to New York City and also working at Audubon, all of a sudden I had like the social aspect of birding to tap into. And it was a lot, but yeah, I kind of had to elbow my way into it, um, as is the case mm -hmm. in things beyond birding as well. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and I see opportunities now where that people who don't want to do that would find a better transition, you know, the feminist bird club, you don't have to put forth that kind of energy to feel accepted. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I look forward to mm -hmm. like, just more of those groups and movements coming about. And I think Black Birders Week was definitely a movement. Um, that's a part of that. I think that it could just be as much as like, if you see somebody in the field, rather than, you know, everybody asks that question, oh, what have you seen? Hmm. Seen anything good? Right. Mm. It's like, <laughs> like, as a, the unspoken thing is like, you know, do yeah. you know what's good? That's yeah. Like right. subjective and question. it's like, well, instead of being like, oh, just a cardinal or oh, just a wood duck, like you should just be like, oh, sweet. Like, where did you see it? Like, 
do you yeah. want to come bird with me and we could go look at some other stuff? Like there's just a bunch of ways that you can be open rather than being standoffish when you run into somebody in the field. Yeah, that's a wonderful yep, point. Totally agree. And not be offended if the person says no to that invitation. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I always ask if, I always say, uh, hey, seen any good movies lately? That's my uh, birding opening line. That's terrible. Don't use that. No, I never say <laughs> no, that. I'm leaving it. I'm that's putting it in. Stupid joke. Yeah, so speaking of mini movements, Female Bird Day kind of claims its origins to the World Series of Birding, which I'm sure many of the listeners know about. And so a few of my Audubon colleagues and I, um, Stephanie Bielke and Martha Harbison, we put together a team called the Galbatrosses last spring. And (laughs) yeah, very good name. (laughs) We put a lot of thought into it. Basically, we knew we had no chance of competing in the actual uh, World Series. So we only counted female birds that we could identify either by look or sound or behavior. And it was really eye-opening experience. It was really hard. We (laughs) came in second to last with our total and only beat (laughs) a group of four-year-olds. I'm not joking. (laughs) Really beat those four-year-olds, though. (laughs) By like two species. Thank thank goodness for that indigo bunting at the end. Um, but yeah, it was just such a different and um, educational bird experience that we were like, we have to do this again. So we were talking about it this year. And of course, the pandemic took hold. Um, and we decided, all right, we're just going to bird, you know, pick a weekend in May where we think female bird activity is going to be high. And we're going to bird in our respective places and just kind of pool together our observations to start cre- building this list of identifying features for female birds, because that's something that's really missing, at least in like the general popular birding mm-hmm. guide literature. Like mm. you go into a field guide and maybe there will be a photo of a female bird or like a one line description of how she nests. but really field guides are centered around male bird characteristics um, as are, you know, common bird names and such. So yeah, we started with, you know, the five galbatrosses and then decided that we could use all the help we could get. Um, And we picked out Memorial Day weekend and just had people tag female bird photos and observations with female bird day hashtag. It wasn't, you know, limited to this one weekend. We're hoping that people will continue to share their observations. And we have like a very scientific Google form that um, we're going to use to organize all this information and put it in a public domain so that, yeah, people can refer over to it when they want to figure out whether the Eastern Kingbird they're looking at is a female or if it's male, because you can't just tell by their plumage. How do you tell? Just out of curiosity. So this was my little win from the weekend. Um, Mm -hmm. So I saw Eastern Kingbird building a nest and I used um, Cornell's Birds of the World encyclopedia and saw that the literature says that only females engage in nest building. So that was that was the tip off right there. So if people want to contribute observations, um, we have a website. It's called femalebirdday.wordpress.com because it's a free domain. (laughs) Um, 
we've got a few scientists on the team, you know, we're trying to be rigorous about um, what facts we put out there. But it's it's exciting to see what, you know, we can we can all come up with as a birding community. Yeah, I think it's really neat. The the idea of um, looking at other characteristics of birds to get that sort of information. Like you said, the Eastern Kingbird, the female does nest building. So if you see the a bird, Eastern Kingbird building a nest, there you go. Causes us to look at bird behavior and things of that nature a lot more, um, which is super cool. Yeah. And I know, I know Ryan was participating. Ryan, did you see, were there, what was your like highlight observation from that weekend? Um, I actually was, I would say this is cheating, but I saw, um, <laughs> warbling vireos engage in like courtship and copulation and so i knew that one of them had to be the female 50 <laughs> 50 <laughs> but that was exciting because new york is also doing its breeding bird atlas this year uh but i did i probably saw i think 25 species of female bird for the weekend and got dunked on on twitter when i posted one of the pictures and i was like wow look at this female american red star and someone's like it's got black between the eyes it's a young male and i was like no <laughs> Yeah, we had Lauren Benedict on um, on Ooh, this yeah. podcast not that long ago, and um, she is doing such cool work with bird vocalizations. It's um, the the extent to which that science has, you know, exploded in the last few years has been really neat to see. Yeah, the Female Bird Song Project was a big inspiration for this, um, and I think we pulled up Lauren and her colleagues have put together a list of the North American birds they know where the female type sings. Um, so we, yeah, we really depended mm-hmm. on that list as well. Like oven birds. I somehow missed this on Twitter and I apologize. It's been a crazy uh, time, but uh, I think this whole I thing know. is so awesome and fascinating. And the, the, you know, the, the fact that field guides are based so much around male characteristics and that female birds, there's just as many female birds as there are males. They really get, you know, such um, small press in the field guides. That's, just really, I never even thought about that. It's really eye-opening, and to consider how other people are viewing the the sort of infrastructure of birding, um, that's just it's really interesting, and I, uh, I I love it. And I got the sense that it's important not just for knowing about female birds, but even for conservation. I remember mm-hmm. reading that golden-winged warblers, for example, the females and males inhabit different habitat in the winter, and so if you're only conserving the males' habitat, then you're forgetting about half of this threatened species exactly really makes you think this and black birders week too make you think about the extent to which so much of what we depend on as birders so much of the ornithology that we learn from is based in not only the you know 17th and 18th or the 18th and 19th centuries but like the 18th and 19th century perceptions about like gender and race and all these things like they were really we're really due for for an update um ornithology and birding in general and just and just you know uh, revealing all of that to start is just incredibly important to me it feels it feels new and important and i I appreciate it yeah i also like knowing that there's so much more to know about birds too yeah so this is actually a great segue into uh, a story that i'm bringing this week Mm -hmm. uh, which is that in hooded warblers on their breeding grounds uh, males go through a pretty intense molt where they'll molt both their tail feathers and their flight feathers at the same time in August. For the late nesters, the males are unable to take care of the of the young. And so the females will actually step in and take over all the slack. And uh, a study has shown that actually there isn't much of a uh, 
disadvantage to the females for these for these late nesting birds. The only real disadvantage is that, you know, they'll have fewer eggs and they'll lay fewer eggs for the later part of it. But it's just amazing that, you know, the females are able to just figure it out while they're uh, while their males are off dealing with themselves. <laughs> yeah, I like that story. I thought that one of the cool things about it that I did not know about hooded warblers was how they forage using the uh, white flashes in their tail. Yeah, and hooded warblers are such, I mean, they're great when you see them, but just every experience I have with them is like trying to figure out where this bird is in some <laughs> thicket. And so just learning more about the life of this pretty mysterious bird is is just really cool. Often when I think about warbler season, like I get so stuck in this frenzy of seeing as many as I can and trying to mm-hmm. identify them. And I really, yeah, I don't give their behaviors or their lives outside of that two-week spring migration window much thought so that we can look to this science and just learn something more about the birds we kind of objectified during our <laughs> our, our birding rush. And I mean, it's a, it's perfect for females birders week, right? Or female bird week, because if you're looking at a female hooded warbler, then you're like, damn, she's like really doing it. Like <laughs> that, that bird's about to do some big work over at her nest site. Yeah. Sisters doing it for themselves. (laughs) (laughs) This is a story I love because it's from my beloved home state of Maine and because it involves fierce mortal combat. Uh, So a a year ago in May, um, a kayaker near the town of Bridgeton, Maine, in the sort of western mountains, um, came across a a bald eagle uh, floating dead face up in a lake. And uh, near it was a dead uh, common loon chick. Like a murder mystery. Like a- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Stephen King may have was, right. was lurking That's in right. the bushes. So the, 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 the bodies made it back to uh, our Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife and where it came out uh, this, you know, this May that this eagle, so it was found with a, like a piercing in its chest, um, like it had been hit with a javelin or an arrow or something. And what the scientists have deduced was that the adult loon speared this eagle in the chest and killed it. It's really interesting for a lot of reasons. Number one, it reveals some character about bald eagles that I think, I think a lot of people who uh, are maybe novice birders um, obviously hold the bald eagle in the highest of regards. Like this, it's this beautiful, noble creature, you know, folks who know eagles know they, they, um, you know, are are sort of scavengers or, or harass other creatures for their food. A lot of the time, they're not very noble in practice. And sort of similarly, um, the fierceness of common loons. I mean, common loons are killers. Um, I know a lot of rehabilitators who really don't like working with common loons because they have that huge sharp bill and that's, that's their defensive mechanism. The knife on their face. Oh yeah. Your eyes. I wrote a story about common loons last year. And, uh, I just remember the researchers saying over and over again, like loons are bad news. Like they'll kill other (laughs) loons in a heartbeat. Sure. Loons are fearsome, and they also have a lot to worry about. You know, loon chicks are um, predated by fish from below and by, uh, you know, mammals getting after the eggs and by bald eagles. I mean, it's not easy for a, for a loon to raise its chicks. And it also raises another interesting issue that I've, I've heard from some scientists, too, is the sort of the impact of um, the grateful increase in bald eagle populations has had has sort of rippled out on other animals. Um, I've talked to a, a harlequin duck researcher uh, on the Pacific coast 
who talked about the large uh, increase now in pred- uh, predation of young harlequin ducks out there from bald eagles mm. who are in larger numbers. Um, there are similar uh, impacts to, uh, for example, great blue herons and great cormorants nesting in Maine from from eagles coming back. And so, um, you know, the return of the bald eagle and osprey and all the other raptors and other creatures that were affected by DDT is obviously a huge success story. Um, but but that's not the only story. You know, there are other um, it, it, it ripples out in impacts that I, that I think you know maybe yet to be studied in full, but I think are really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you really went with that story, Nick. I I would have just made the like the easy Bon Jovi joke <laughs> and let it go. Loon to the heart. Yeah, and you're to blame. <laughs> no, um, Bon Jovi's not my dude. <laughs> uh, I really wonder what that like fierce loon parent is up to now. Like, I hope I hope it got some recognition from its loon community. Do you think Do you think it got a taste for eagle? <laughs> it probably I, got like a Boy Scout patch. Right. <laughs> Eagle dispatching. <laughs> I wonder if this presages any sort of uh, possible conflict between the United States and Canada, considering that our two national birds had it out in this way. Mm. Oh, are loons, are loons the Canadian national bird? Yeah, they're on their coins. Uh-huh. I tell you, I'm open to it at this point. I'm open to it. I think, <laughs> yeah, we're, I like I think we're ready for a reckoning. We need something to well, change. Well, the fact that the loon came out on top is probably... So, but overall, loons, both loons and bald eagles are doing very well in Maine. But, but Ryan's point was right at the top too. Loons um, beat the crap out of each other. You know, they're very territorial. And early in the spring, um, when the male birds come back early and fight for territory, they fight and kill each other and bleed. And um, a, a lot of Mainers, people who live in other places where loons breed, have stories of being on lakes in the spring and and just witnessing these like just vicious scary loud uh <laughs> conflicts and it's um it's not really the sort of uh, chilled out vibe that a lot of people associate with loons wow i would love to see that last year i wrote a story for perbita actually at audubon about a loon who raised a baby duck and it was like this huge thing that these two loons raised a mallard chick but when i spoke to the researchers they were like yeah i guess it's weird that the loons raised the mallard but it's weirder that the loons didn't kill the mallard <laughs> <laughs> yeah eat it <laughs> yeah yeah so among all the bird news as usual there's always news from the federal government and uh the trump administration has been quite busy um the past few weeks specifically in the environmental department. So to start off this month, the president issued an executive order that basically used the pandemic as a crutch uh, to eliminate environmental review for construction projects or, um, you know, whether it be like a pipeline or even logging within a national forest. Is the justification that the regulators can't get to it or was it even that well thought out no it's uh the justification is that we are in a time of economic hardship and that these projects yep that these projects you know will help us get past this recession and so they just need to be sped up there can't be you know any barriers and like environmental studies to hold them up whereas you know we know that the laws that enforce these environmental studies, um, including the National Environmental Protection Act. Policy Policy Act. uh, Policy Act. Yeah, sorry. They, yeah, they're there in place because going through these adequate scientific conservation reviews 
actually preserves resources, um, prevents further health and economic damage to both people and to wildlife. So it's still unclear how this executive order squares with you know, this decades-old law that we have set by Congress. Most experts think it's going to be a case-by-case basis where environmental lawyers will have to, you know, sue the government if they aren't going through the adequate studies and uh, reviews. But yeah, it's, it's just another thing that is dinging these pretty strong environmental policies we've had set and that have been working for a long time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think what's so annoying about this one is that, uh, and what I've seen so much is that it really just shows that like birding is political. I mean, people act like, uh, you know, they get mad when you post these articles like, oh, the Trump administration is is doing this. But it's like, if you guys care about birds, like, and you don't care about what the government is doing to birds, then are you really a birder at all? I do want to point out that there is some positive conservation news um, oh, coming please. out of the federal government <laughs> recently. If I, if I, and I don't want to step on anyone, if anyone else is going to talk about this, but, but yesterday. Well, with this podcast runs, it will be last right. week, but yeah. Um, <laughs> In the recent past, (laughs) from when this podcast runs, the United States Senate passed a a bill called the Great American Outdoors Act, uh, which is a bill that uh, a lot of people, environmentalists in the federal government have worked for for a long time. It would provide permanent funding for uh, what's called the Land and Water Conservation Fund, this critical um, source of money that can be that has been uh, used to protect millions of acres uh, for national parks or for all kinds of um, conservation sources. So protects these lands. Uh, And it also will give some money to help fix the national park backlog. So there's all these um, maintenance projects in national parks that have gone, that sort of languished for decades in some cases um, that really need to be addressed uh, if these places are right for visitation and can provide good services. So um, after many, many years of battle, the, the Senate has passed the Great American Outdoors Act. It's moving on to the House now, which it seems likely to pass there soon. And um, believe it or not, the president has indicated some willingness to sign this thing into law. So um, if that does happen, that's that's really good news, uh, especially in these times where um, this administration really has its heart dead set on tearing down as much uh, of the conservation progress that this country has made as as they can. If it gets past the president's desk as well, would it go into effect immediately? Uh, good question. I do not know. I assume for the next fiscal year when they can appropriate funds for LWCF, okay. um, but I, I don't know. What is that acronym? Uh, Land and Water Conservation Fund, LWCF. There you go. You government types. In your- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good news. It's good news. That is very good, it is news. good news. The one other conservation landmark that I would ask birders to look out for is um, there's been this years-long struggle in redefining the waters of the U.S. rule, which basically ties in with the Clean Water Act and specifies you know, which bodies of water actually fall under the Clean Water Act. 
so under the last administration, the rule was expanded to include smaller bodies of water like prairie potholes and marshes um, because, you know, they also have a really huge benefit for um, human and wildlife health. And the Trump administration, since it came into office, has been working to narrow that rule again so that these these smaller bodies of water will not be um, protected. On June 22nd, that new old definition of the rule will be going into effect. And there are a few lawsuits standing in court against it, um, specifically to, you know, delay it. But it looks as if right now that, yeah, it's it's going to be changed. Can I, and can I make sort of a uh, soapbox point um, on a lot of stuff? It, uh, the, the passage of the Great American Outdoors Act and um, the harmful work that the administration is doing and also some of the disappointing results that have been coming out of the Supreme Court recently, it underlines the importance of contacting your congressperson. Congress has far more power to make good decisions and keep decisions solid than either the Supreme Court or the the president. Um, The Supreme Court can only interpret the words of Congress. The same thing for the president. Um, With these sort of emergency powers accepted, um, the Congress is the one that can bind uh, the president's actions or, um, you know, pass laws that, um, that don't have loopholes for people to exploit. And so, you know, a lot of people get, you know, for example, action alerts or whatever from environmental groups that you're a part of, those things really make a difference and really work. And engaging with your Congress people, your senators and your representatives is honestly the number one way to, to get laws made, obviously, and then and get good laws solidified for a long term. Um, so please f- remember the power of Congress and focus on Congress because that's um, th- those are the people with the real power here. So if you're listening to this podcast, write your congressperson. Write them. Go yell at them. Run for office. <laughs> yeah, run for office, too. Let's. My congressperson blocked me on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so before we say uh, goodbye, I do want to ask a, a question of the month to all of you. I want to hear your hottest bird take. Scalding hot. I got one. I got one. Right. I I just came up with this one today. So there's been a lot of talk of renaming birds. Mm -hmm. I love discussing how bad common names of birds are and how they should be changed and what they should be changed to. A lot of the debate has focused around birds named after people, and I can't remember the term for that right now because I'm a moron. Honorifics, thank you. Or Patrick. Um, A lot of the debate has focused around honorifics, right? And Mm -hmm. how um, they're named after uh, the wrong people or uh, they're just misleading. Um, My heartbird take is this. All birds should be named after people. Oh, no. All all birds, every bird should be named after a different person. (laughs) Um, here's, Here's why. Here's why. First of all, common names are, they don't, the birds don't know what their names are. Right. This is not for the birds. This is just for us, Mm -hmm. for humans to to be able to talk amongst ourselves. So like this is it doesn't matter. The birds don't care. Uh, It doesn't matter. Second of all, there are a lot of good people out there. Right. There's a ton of good people who don't have anything good going on in their life. Probably. Um, (laughs) How cool would it be if they had a bird named after them or how deserving would it be if they had a bird named after them? (laughs) (laughs) So just like instead of like, I don't know, orange crowned warbler, it's just like 
Mendelbaum. Melissa Davis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. even just the bird name. Just, it's just a, a person's name. This is Melissa. <laughs> yeah. This is Mark yeah, I Thrush. Think, <laughs> you know, so in this age of digital field guides, all the names can be updated just with a download. It's not a big lift for the publication industry. Um, and I think it would be a lot more fun if it was just like, um, oh, that's a Tom Jones warbler. Oh, and that's, hey, there's Dave up there. That's a Dave. So that's my bird take. I think we should go away from the boring, like, color body parted warbler to all honorifics i left this recording two minutes ago (laughs) (laughs) i stand by it that is pretty hot i should have known what i was getting into when i asked for it all right well if you're ready for my take i have an equally equally hot take which is that uh so right now in new york we have these pelagic trips that go out 150 miles offshore just so that we could see sort of these Gulf Stream birds like Bandrum Storm Petrel mm-hmm. and uh, Black Cap Petrel. Those birds do not belong on the New York State list. Oh, <laughs> I don't freaking care. <laughs> like, I it does not count. You are basically going to a different country. And, like, you are, you are not seeing these birds in New York State. The only acceptable black cap petrol records for New York State should be the storm records that bring them close to shore. It doesn't make any sense Ooh. to me why it should. Like, yeah, I mean, I love that I have Bandrum Storm Petrol on my New York State list, but like, I wasn't in New York. I was basically in Couldn't like even see New York, the middle of nowhere. <laughs> So that's the hot take I came up with today. That's good. (laughs) Also, birds from Staten Island should not count on the New York (laughs) (laughs) State. Should Staten Island be an autonomous bird counting area or should they just give it to New Jersey? They should give it to New Jersey. Wait, so let me me just dig in. So what, how... Those birds that are, say, whatever, 50 miles offshore, do do they count for nobody or do they count for, like, what do you do with those birds? They count for, I don't know, Gulfstream Autonomous Zone. They don't, they belong <laughs> on your world list. You know, it's just like, they're, I mean, it's like Antarctica birds. Like, sure, that could count for your Antarctica list, but it doesn't go on your, like, you know, Chile list. Like, it's, you mm-hmm. saw the bird in Antarctica. It's like, okay, you saw your black cap petrel so far from shore that you were not under the auspices of U.S. law. Like, you... <laughs> Like if the bird wouldn't, if the bird isn't actually in the United States, because right now the way that they do it is the closest point of land, right? Yeah. So it's like that's, okay, well, the there's point. there's arguments. Well, about yeah, that. that's a yeah, huge boundary. That's a big right? thing. Yeah, Buckley, Buckley lines are the other ones for for those yeah. uh, uh, lame little states that have just a tiny little coastline. I want to. There's make a lot it, of you know, yeah. Georgia, Georgia. Yeah, so. they Georgia, don't even belong on your ABA list. I mean, it's like the only mm. black cap petrels that belong on your ABA list are the ones you see like 20 miles offshore of North Carolina. Like, it doesn't belong if you're literally going hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles offshore to see it. And then you're like, oh, the America's pretty close to here. Here, Here's my counterpoint, though. <laughs> Pelagic birding is often so miserable that I am damn counting this for whatever I want to count it as. You know what I mean? I love pelagic yeah. burning, but it is it, it is an ordeal sometimes. It is an ordeal. And like, yeah. if someone came back, you're like, well, you have to count that for the ocean. I'm like, no, 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 no. I am counting this for what I want to count it as. I barfed 12 times. <laughs> hey, it's your list, all right? I'm just saying for the, for the state record committee, you know, I rest my case. It's a good take. Do you have one for Bita? Uh, I do. Um, So the other night I was on a big Zoom call with a few friends and they were all talking about their favorite burgers. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I can't eat beef because I'm Hindu. uh, So I felt a little left out of the conversation. Oh, sorry. No, we weren't talking about burgers. We were talking about steaks. Um, So then I told them that 
Sandhill Crane was a kind of meat that they could try. And it's, <laughs> also, this guy. it's also something I can eat. So then one of my friends uh, screen shared his um, Google images and we just looked at like prime cuts of Sandhill Crane meat and it looked delicious. So now I'm extremely bent on trying Sandhill Crane. As you said, Nate, it's called ribeye of the sky and is highly regarded. I think I'll probably have to wait till next winter for the hunting season, but that's on my on my list of things to accomplish in 2020. I know that some people get very sensitive when you consider ta- eating sandhill cranes, but yeah, I, a lot of people love it. Hot take. Outrage. I'm with you. I would eat it. I would eat any animal. Oh my God, let's do it together. Literally yeah. a hot take because it's right off the grill. I'd like to take that hot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I have a duck hunting friend, and he uh, has told me that uh, some ducks are quite delicious, and other ducks are quite horrible. So, scoter, don't don't eat scoter. Yeah, mm. was well, the old joke, the old hunting joke that says how you cook a scoter is you cook it on a shingle, and then you eat the shingle. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> burn! Yeah, take that scoter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I know that some of the listeners are like super anti hunting. I mean, I don't like the idea of killing birds, but I do like the idea of a burger. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I got a hot take, and it is um, blue winged warbler and golden winged warbler should be lumped just <gasps> so that we can count Lawrence's warbler uh, as a full species because it's the best bird of any of them. The hybrids are better than the full species, anyway. <laughs> so. Okay. I hate it. So they can't <laughs> they can't call um Lawrence's and Brewster's their own species until blue-winged and golden-winged are like lumped together. Yeah, cuz they're technically uh, well, hybrids, but okay. they're but they're I mean, genetically they're they're one species really. Okay. I went to a, a well-known golden-wing blue-wing breeding ground in New York. And they're the same bird. I mean, oh, when yeah. you're there, it's just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, they're in the same tree. They're, I mean, the song's like, okay, yeah, so the gold wing sings three times, a blue wing sings twice. But like, if I was a blue winged warbler and I heard a gold winged warbler, I'd be like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like jazz. It's improvisation. Counterpoint. Have you seen them? They look completely different. Thank you. I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Nick, you have very good counterpoints. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan, Prabita, and Nick. You can find them all on their various social media platforms. Please do. They are all great. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Eat crane, everyone. Look out, Donna Shulman. I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a nonprofit, membership-driven organization. And of course, the best way to support this podcast and the many other things we do for the birding community is to join the ABA. You get magazines, you get discounts to our partners, and you help us do stuff like this. We even have e-memberships and discounted memberships for young birders. Get more information at aba.org slash join. I want to make a special shout out to... Brian Schneider of Madison, Wisconsin, Joe Ariana of Beverly, Massachusetts, Charlie Patterson of Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Tyrrell of Fort St. John, British Columbia, David Daryl Lambert from Chafford Hundred, UK, Danielle Solomon and her family of Beverly Hills, California, all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you for that. Welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's a bit of a foodie. 
Once you've finished those sandhill crane tenderloins, he suggests you try brown pelican, or as it's known, pot roast on the Gulf Coast. Technical production is by John Lowry, who as a devoted carnivore has a lot of good things to say about eared grebe, or as he calls it, the flank steak of the Salt Lake. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who are both big fans of grilled sooty shearwater cut very, very thin, where it goes by the charcuterie of Monterey Bay. You can find us online at aba.org and on Facebook at facebook.com slash birding and on Twitter at aba. You know, where the aba is located in Delaware, we only have to look right across the bay to see one of the finest birding sites on the continent, Cape May, New Jersey, with a culinary tradition and a birding tradition like no other. In fact, you can go out to the Sea Watch, you can watch thousands of birds pass by, maybe catch a few cormorants, serve them up, or as they call them there, the filet mignon of Cape May's Avalon. Delicious. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. We'll see you next week.